Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to AOA. Thank you so much for joining us and letting us be part of your day as we kick off a new week. Hope you had a good weekend. Here's what we'll be talking about today. We'll go over the weather news, who got rain and who didn't, how much rain and what we might expect this week. We're also going to get the latest Purdue CME Group Ag Barometer numbers, the ag economy numbers down again in this barometer. Michael Langmeyer, Purdue Ag Economist, will go over those with us. And we'll review some of the biofuels news and where they that industry goes from here with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. All that coming up on today's program. But always happy to start things off with a look at the news. We're always happy when we can talk with our good friend from DTN. We welcome Todd Neely. Todd, how are you? Good to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, late last week, Secretary Vilsack, in a meeting in uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa, at a press conference there, said USDA would be investing $500 million in American Rescue Plan funding to build new meat and poultry processing capacity and also plans to distribute $150 million to help get existing small and very small processing facilities through the pandemic. Also, creating new rules for product of USA labels and making new markets accessible to producers. Wow, a little bit of everything there in that uh, press conference last week. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. You know, I think um, at the very least, I think, you know, as we talked about this, I think to see the attention brought to this issue when it comes to competition in in, uh, the livestock industry uh, and packing processing plants, I think it's it's really uh, it's really a good way to start the whole uh, the whole discussion. I think you know five hundred million dollars off the top sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money. Um, but when you look at investing in in some of these smaller uh, packing facilities, um, you know five hundred million is probably not going to go a very long way. But I think um, at the very least, it's going to get other investors maybe interested in some of these uh, some of these facilities. I know that. Um, you know, just having more of that local meat uh, packing production uh, available, I think, is going to obviously make it easier uh, when we talk about supply concerns and, you know, some of the things we saw during COVID when we had plants shutting down. Uh, it really did bring a lot of attention to that side of the issue. And I think, you know, um, you know, if we can get other other investors brought into this, to this sector, I think that's a good thing. I think that's what it's probably going to take. Um, you know, to maybe make that side of the industry more competitive. Yeah, Todd, I I hope it leads to good things. It's an area that needs to be addressed. I I do worry that uh, you run the risk here of over-promising and under-delivering. You get people's hopes up, and as you said, that sounds like a lot of money, but it only goes so far. Uh, I don't think you're going to change things overnight. It's going to take time, and the longer these things take, sometimes uh, that can cause problems. The other thing is, what happens if you build these facilities and then you don't need as much space always in the future? Can those places stay profitable, stay in business? Do you have to keep going in and, and, and helping them out to keep them going? I mean, uh, a lot of questions, I think, still will need to be answered as we go through this process. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good, you know, that's a fair concern, Mike. I think that uh, you know, one of the things that we've seen is a lot of the large packers have really taken over 
the industry. You know, there's been a lot of talks about uh, monopolies and those sorts of things. Um, you know, you're right. I think if, you know, we get some of these smaller processors off the ground, I think it's a good thing. But, uh, you know, do we end up in a position where maybe some of the large packers again uh, intervene at some point and buy out some of these places? You know, um, you're right. I mean, they have to remain not only competitive, but they have to remain profitable. Um, and so that's, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of questions. I, I do think that just having, uh, this issue front and center though, I think it's, uh, just that in itself is really going to, uh, go a long way toward finding solutions. Yeah, I think a good first step. We'll see where it goes from here. All right, so they're really going to get into this product of USA labeling issue. Uh, we've talked about this before. Uh, you got a lot of people weighing in on this. It's going to be hard to make, uh, well, you're not going to make everybody happy, but hopefully they can find some good path forward here. Yeah, you know, Mike, and I think, uh, you, know, I, you know, we've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of times where the federal government has, has written and rewritten rules to, to, uh, to make things better in, in different circumstances. And I think this, this particular area is very difficult, I think, to really find, uh, you know, to find that sweet spot. You know, now whether, uh, you know, this, like I said, this is really going to raise a lot more discussion. I think that's, that's a good thing. And I think uh, probably now is the time to get all the voices heard and get, uh, you know, maybe get some idea for how something like this might work. You know, not that, uh, what we've had in place has been necessarily a terrible thing, but, uh, you know, it, it can definitely be made improved. And I think, um, you know, at least, again, we're talking about these things. And I, I think, you know, that's just going a long way in of itself, just getting the discussion and, and really, uh, really working on this issue. There are also uh, the administration wants to address ag consolidation and that takes in a lot of different things. Well, you're wading into something here that, while a concern to a lot of people and needs their areas to be need to be addressed how specific can you get can you really make a dent in this or does it just look good you say you're going to try to go out in there and, and do something uh, again kind of waiting to see what the what approach they take here yeah and i agree mike i think uh you know ag consolidation is a huge thing you know a lot of it occurs uh in a way that makes uh, you know, some some things that, you know, farmers and, and ranchers use, you know, some of the inputs, uh, different different uh, items that they need on, on farm. Uh, it, it's supposed to make, I think, you know, those, the prices of those things more affordable. But uh, you're right. This is, this is going to be a tough one to tackle because, you know, there's a lot of entrenched interests. There's a lot of uh, big companies involved, a lot of very successful companies, um, you know, and just like anyone in this economy, I don't think a lot of those are probably really willing to give up, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the headway that they've made. And so, um, you know, perhaps we get, you know, more more uh, companies involved. We get more investment in other companies. And I think that's really the best way to go about it, I think, you know, just getting uh, more competition. And, you know, going back to the meatpacking issue, I think that's, uh, that's maybe one model that I think a lot of people are going to look at and... Uh, We'll see what happens, but you know it's it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's it's going to be a process. Yeah, my position is it's good to address these issues and and highlight them, but I don't. Yeah. I just think it's dangerous and risky when you think government's going to solve these problems. Uh, government should give opportunities for, for people to be able to address these issues. Don't right. count on government to do it for you. Yeah, absolutely, and I think. You know, that's that's where we've seen some of the best, uh, you know, some of the best uh, ingenuity and, and uh, 
you know, we've seen a lot of really good companies build from the ground up and been highly successful. And it's because of people who work hard. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's probably, uh, it's probably a good time to look at some of these issues, but I, you're right. I don't know that government can really do much. I mean, if anything, government can get in the way, uh, a lot of times. And so, um, you know, nothing, nothing breeds competition like competition. Yep. We'll see where it goes. Todd, good to talk with you. Thanks for being with us. All right. Thank you, Mike. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Up next, we take a look at the weather, some severe weather in places, some helpful rains in others over the weekend. What's ahead this uh, coming week? We'll talk about it next here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're joined by Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. We've had some setbacks in the courts from the Supreme Court and Appellate Court on waivers and now on E15 year-round sales. The news isn't all bad. First, give us your assessment of where we're at after these rulings and your outlook for the industry now moving forward. You know, obviously very disappointed in these rulings, and they definitely are setbacks, but this battle is far from over. And the good news on the E15 ruling is this decision doesn't change anything for retailers who are currently selling E15 this summer. They don't have to do anything different for now. The D.C. Circuit essentially put a stay on its ruling. Again, the good news is we don't expect the court decision on E15 to have any impact on gallons sold this summer and the retailer's ability to sell E15 uh, through the middle of September. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. Every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crop, cattle, equipment, technology, and more. They are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. 
Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, let's talk weather. We had a mixed bag across the country. Some areas got some much-needed precipitation. Let's start there with John Baranek, DTM Meteorologist. John, thanks for being with us. Uh, what areas that really needed rain got some rain? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, it was really eastern Nebraska, kind of western Iowa that that have been really dealing with drought here, kind of increasing over the last couple of weeks that got it. Um, we also saw a lot of severe weather with the storms that moved through Friday and Saturday from Nebraska and Kansas, kind of southeastward, uh, all the way into western Kentucky. So uh, a lot of lot of good rainfall in that general region, a lot of four-plus-inch uh, amounts in there. There's even some uh, over eight in uh, northern Missouri. Unfortunately, that caused some flooding uh, kind of around that area in Iowa and, and western Illinois as well. Yeah, unfortunately, that goes with it, especially at this time of year. Uh, you get these storms. You get the needed precipitation. But uh, as you said, in some places, there was storm damage. Yeah, there was. Um, actually, there was a really good uh, uh, cluster of storms that produced a, a Boeing segment, as we like to call it, uh, that rushed south along the Missouri River through Omaha, caused a lot of power outages, some of our uh, clients and some of our colleagues in the Omaha area lost a lot of power for and just came on this morning for a couple of those folks. Um, but we also saw that uh, in western Iowa. We saw that in eastern Missouri. We saw that in southern Illinois. We saw it in a lot of places uh, over the weekend. All right. What areas did not get much rain at all, if any, over the weekend? Yeah, it didn't turn out so well, and it's not as much as we wanted it to in the Dakotas, Minnesota, northern Iowa. Uh, there were some areas around there that did receive over an inch of rainfall, but those were pretty sparse, uh, pretty much clustered right along the South Dakota-Minnesota border. Um, but overall, there it stayed dry, and Wisconsin stayed dry, and so did uh, Michigan as well. Some of those areas have seen improvement in, in the drought, but the, the areas in the west have not, so they really need it. Um, hopefully, we'll get it with a, a storm system moving through here in the next couple of days. Uh, there's a storm that's going to be uh, moving through South Dakota and then across southern Minnesota, northern Iowa, and into Wisconsin uh, Tuesday night into Wednesday and Thursday. And we're looking at a pretty good rainfall amounts there. Probably one to two inches of rainfall is, is a good bet. We'll probably see some isolated areas that have uh, more than that. So uh, helping to put some relief on the drought occurring in some of those areas. But we're still going to need more after that. Well, let's talk temperatures. Uh, I know I'm here in uh, west central Illinois and temperatures for this time of year have been down. Now we have high humidity, but uh, the temperatures have certainly been lower than usual. And here we are in July. It's a you know, critical time for crops. Uh, for the most part, we're not seeing 
in a big part of the production area of the Midwest. We're not seeing the, you know, 90s or approaching hundreds or anything like that, like we've seen some years past. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, along with uh, especially the rainfall across the eastern Midwest, uh, the temperatures have been cooler because of that. Um, storm systems moving through, bringing down a little bit of a Canadian air, uh, been helping out with that. So, yeah, we've been uh, enjoying more seasonable temperatures, uh, at least since the middle of June, um, than we had been in early June and even in May. Um, and, you know, what we would typically see, you know, during a summer is some better heat waves across uh, the, the, the middle of the, of the country here. We just haven't seen it just yet, but uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's not going to happen for the rest of the season yet. I think there's a, some pretty good chances here, especially as we get into August, uh, of the heat really returning over the eastern Midwest. You know, other than the dry western part of the Corn Belt and, you know, the Dakotas and that area, I mean, they've been dry for a long time now. But it seems like for much of the rest of the Midwest, it, it's not been one dominant system. It's been a, kind of a mixed bag and up and down, a little bit of everything. Yeah, and, and you know, you, you should probably expect that during a typical summer, right? So, um, yeah, it's been fairly typical. I mean, most most of the areas that we need the rain, though, in, in the West have been just just dry and continue to be dry. The, the rain they get is just not near enough. Uh, but for the rest of the, the, the country, you know, you, it's typically what you'd find during the summer. You get some good rainfall for uh, a week or maybe even a couple of weeks, followed by some Pockets of dryness, occasional showers moving through, but for the most part, yeah, you're you're right. Most most of the growing areas this this year have been doing fairly well outside of that northwestern portions of, of the Corn Belt. Okay, you told us a little bit about some areas that could get some rain this week. What about the rest of the Midwest this coming week? Yeah, so that system moving through uh, the northern tier of the country here uh, over the next couple of days will bring a cold front through the rest of the area. Uh, later this week and into the weekend, and we kind of slow to move through the mid, through the southern Midwest and then down to the southeast. So we'll see additional periods of showers and thunderstorms build up here late this week into early next week um, as you move further south through the country. Again, amounts are probably going to be fairly good, you know, keeping up with uh, average or a little bit above, uh, good one to two, perhaps three or four in some areas um, that that could use it, some that kind of missed out on the weekend stuff and, and a little bit from last week. So um, looking still fairly favorable for rainfall as we go into next week across the eastern half of the Corn Belt. Then you look at the west coast and you see drought and heat, and on the east coast you see flooding. Yeah, uh, that ridge has been very stubborn out in the west. It's been strong and it's been stubborn. There's been a couple of uh, disturbances that have been able to kind of squeak through a, a couple of the weak spots, and that's what happened over this past weekend and what's going to happen here over the next couple of days. But that ridge just will not give up. Um, there's a possibility that uh, it may, when we get into early August, uh, where we kind of flip a little bit from a, a western ridge and eastern trough to a western trough and eastern ridge, but that's going to depend on whether or not we can get thunderstorm clusters around um, the tropical Indian Ocean and Western Pacific to flare up. If we can get that to happen, which models are suggesting will, we'll see the, the heat dome break down in the west and kind of shift its way to the east. Yeah, how much so? I mean, are we still 
looking at some really hot weather in the Midwest, or is this going to shape up to be a, a relatively mild summer? Uh, in the eastern Midwest, it's kind of questionable right now. I mean, with that rich thing off to the west, we're already kind of, you know, would you say behind on the heat potential for the summer uh, across the eastern Midwest. Um, but uh, if we don't get that chance uh, for the heat to return in August, in early August, we might end up right at or a little bit below normal for the eastern Midwest in terms of temperatures for the season. Yeah, I mean, I realize summer's far from over, uh, but for a lot of the Midwest, we've been talking about, it. well, it's going to be turning hot here for long or turning hot soon, and and here we are approaching mid-July, and we're still, you know, we're still kind of waiting to see if that happens or not. Yeah, the, the, the temperature, it's been trying, but every time it does, it brings in showers, and the showers mm-hmm. have just been knocking them down. Uh, the temperatures, they're still warm out there in the west. They just have not been able to translate eastward. That, that moisture has really cut it down. Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting year. We're talking with John Baranek, DTN meteorologist. So, John, as you, uh, as you look at those dry areas, uh, the Dakotas and parts of Minnesota, Wisconsin, even parts of Iowa, um, you just can't break out of that pattern overnight. Obviously, it takes a long time. And July, August, those aren't good times to be trying to break out of a drought. No, that, those are not. You know, the summertime is not a time for the uh, the typically drier parts of the country to get uh, loads of rain. Uh, it's probably going to have to be fall or the wintertime um, if we're going to see any breaks in the drought. All right, so what else your long-term forecast? I want you to look ahead to August. What do you see shaping up for August? Yeah, so August, I think even if we do get the pattern change, we're still going to be above normal in the western Corn Belt, uh, those northwestern areas that remain dry. And we'll still probably see drier than normal conditions up there as well. Uh, towards the east, like I said, if we could get that heat wave coming in in early August, uh, that's probably the the best chance for heat. Otherwise, we return kind of to a, a normal or slightly below normal temperature profile for the eastern half of the Corn Belts here for August. And the All continued right. wetness is likely. Okay, John, thanks a lot. We'll check in again with you next week. All right, thanks, Mike. Take care. John Branick, DTN meteorologist. All right, up next, uh, we'll go over the uh, latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, second month in a row that the numbers are lower. We'll find out uh, some of the uh, reasoning behind that as we talk with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langmeyer next. Also, take a look at some specific areas that they ask about on this month's barometer and some of the interesting responses that they receive. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from throughout the cooperative system, from global market access to local expertise, We'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. 
blood clots can happen to anyone. Up to 900,000 people in the United States are affected by blood clots each year, and 100,000 die from them. Blood clots don't discriminate. You or a loved one could be at risk right now. The good news is blood clots can be prevented. Knowing the risks and symptoms are key. On average, one person in the United States dies of a blood clot every six minutes. Don't let that be you or someone you know. Learn more at StopTheClot.org slash Spread the Word. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall. Chinese farmers have reportedly increased their corn plantings this year to take advantage of record corn prices. Reuters reported that the corn acreage expansion in China would increase their 2021-2022 corn production by at least 6 percent. Domestically, weather and Monday's USDA reports have the market buzzing. Row crops are mixed this morning. September corn trading three and a fraction lower at 533 and a fraction. The December contract down five and three quarters at five. 18. For soybeans, the August contract up five and a half cent at 13.71 and a half cent. The September contract up four at 13.30 and a fraction. For wheat, Chicago wheat September down three at 6.15. Kansas City wheat September up two and a half cent at 5.90 and a half cent. Minneapolis spring wheat September up three quarters at 8.05 and three quarters. The December contract up three quarters at 7.98 and three quarters. For livestock, cash bids did not do well this week. Texas cattle traded at an average of $120 in Nebraska, averaging $125. Kansas ranged from $119 to $122, averaging $120. These are steady to slightly lower than last week. August live cattle on the Board of Trade trading $0.25 lower at $119.02. The October contract down $35 at $125.10. For feeders, August unchanged at $157.32. September down $0.07 at $159.95. In lean hogs, the August contract up $67 at 101.05, the October contract up 62 at 84.72. In the outside markets, the Dow is up 371 points, the Nasdaq composite up 43, the S&P 500 up 32, crude oil in New York, the August contract up $1.45 at 74.39 per barrel, the U.S. dollar index is trending lower. That was a check of Friday Morning Markets. I'm Kirsten Rall, and you're listening to AOA. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, for the second month in a row, the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer declined falling 
21 points below a month earlier and the weakest sentiment reading since July of 2020. Here to talk about it is Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langmeyer. Michael, thanks for joining us. What's your takeaway from this? Well, both the, both the sub-indices that make up the Ag Economy Barometer Index, the Index of Current Conditions and the Index of Future Expectations fell, but the Index of Current Conditions fell uh, much more steep, steeply. And, and we think the reasons why, the, one of the reasons why uh, the index fell so hard is if, if you look at when we surveyed people in mid-May and then uh, the week of June 21st to 25th, uh, both corn and soybean futures prices, if you look at the nearby futures, fell dramatically. Uh, if you look at the, the soybean future, uh, the soybean futures, uh, we saw a drop of about $2.50, very large drop from mid-May to mid-June. Uh, and also the corn uh, futures, the nearby corn futures, dropped about $0.80. Cents. And so even though the prices are still relatively strong, uh, certainly those prices are weaker uh, in mid-June compared to what they were in mid-May. And so, and so we think that was a major contributor uh, to the, to the drop, it, drop in the index, uh, uh, particularly the index of, of current conditions. Yeah, always uh, timing is a big part of it, that's for sure. But as you pointed out, even though prices were down at that time, they're still higher than they've been, you know, looking back uh, a year ago. Uh, so they were higher, but it shows, I think, concerns about when you have uh, volatility in the markets and makes you kind of wonder where it's going from here. Yeah, that's certainly the case. We've talked about that before, the fact that the markets are quite volatile. That's going to create an index that, that, that's also quite volatile. And so it, when we see large drops in a particular month, you're going to see that index weaken. Uh, and and uh, you, see in, you see increases in prices, you're going to see that, that index, index strengthen. But I, I would like to qualify those results, however, because one of the questions we've asked is about financial performance in the next 12 months. And even though that's not quite as uh, uh, positive as what it was in, in April and May, uh, because the index dropped, there's still 25% uh, think that we're looking at financial performance better uh, in 21 compared to 20. And so I, I think people do recognize that uh, uh, 21 is still going to be a pretty good year, particularly for crop producers, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, certainly compared to the 2014 to 2019 period. Now, how do producers feel about things like farmland values and, and their own confidence in making purchases, whether it be constructing buildings or purchasing equipment, things like that? Yeah, the, the Farm Capital Investment Index is, is primarily related to machinery, uh, but it also includes buildings uh, dropped in June, as you'd expect. Usually if the index of, of uh, current conditions drops, the, the Farm Capital Investment Index dropped. And so that did drop. Uh, I, I, we, we really haven't quite figured out whether that drop is partially due to the fact that uh, there's, there's uh, not a lot of inventories out there for machinery and, and the prices are increasing, particularly for used machinery. And so we're going to try to ask a question the next month or two to try to get at that part of that index to see if that's part of the reason why uh, the Farm Capital Investment Index dropped. But certainly, if you look at uh, uh, buildings and grain bins, there's there's a uh, a lot fewer people uh, are looking at uh, at looking at purchasing those uh, type making those types of investments this year, and that's not real surprising given the uh, given the problems people have and and getting somebody to actually build a building uh, with, with with high lumber prices and and uh, uh, and, and uh, relatively high bin prices, and so and so there's particular weakness related to buildings and grain bins. Uh, turning to land. Uh, certainly, people are pretty optimistic 
uh, right now with respect to land prices. And even though uh, there is fewer people that think land values are going to increase uh, in the next 12 months, it's still over half. Uh, 53% uh, feel that land prices are going to increase in the next 12 months, and 64% think land values are going to increase in the next five years. And so that remains relatively strong, as well as cash rents. And so that points again to the fact that, uh, particularly for crop producers, 21 looks like it's going to be a pretty strong net return year. Uh, 47% expect cash rents to be higher uh, in, in uh, 22 compared to 21, and, and uh, very, very few think that cash rents are going to be lower. And so I, I would think to kind of to summarize uh, some of what's going on here with the economy barometer, it's really mixed. Uh, you know, the index is down, but there, there's, certainly, there, there's certainly some sediment that land values are going to remain relatively high uh, and increase, uh, and cash rents, uh, you know, upward pressure on cash rents is, is, is certainly appearing. And, 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 uh, uh, and, and so we're going to keep our eye on, on the cash rent question because obviously that's a huge cost. Uh, for crop producers. One other thing I'd, I would like to mention is the uh, the sentiment is lower for livestock producers compared to crop producers. And so part of the part of the weakening in the Ag Economy Barometer Index in the last couple of months has been from livestock producers. Even though livestock producers do, uh, make up a minority of the survey, we do have quite a few beef cow producers and, and at least some dairy and swine producers that do uh, that do respond to the survey every month, and, and uh, the sentiment is weaker uh, for livestock producers compared to crop producers. We're talking with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langmeyer looking at the latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Uh, a concern across uh, agriculture has been labor shortages. Uh, you asked that question in, in the barometer as well. What did the producers say? Yeah, and, and last year, we asked this question last year too uh, uh, during June uh, because of the COVID situation. We thought people might have uh, some trouble uh, hiring hiring uh, workers or hiring employees because of the COVID situation. And so we asked it again this June just to see uh, just to see if some of the things we're hearing out there that people are having a lot of difficulty uh, finding new employees, if, with how real that really was. And it's it's very real. Uh, and, and you know, not not particularly surprising, but we validated that. Uh, first of all, about half of the, the respondents of our survey hire non-family members. And again, these are full-time producers, but only half uh, of the respondents uh, in June hired non-family members. And of those, two-thirds were experiencing experiencing either some difficulty or a lot of difficulty hiring employees. Uh, with close to a third uh, of that group. I experienced a lot of difficulty hiring employees, and so that confirms, uh, you know, some of the things we're hearing out there, and you're probably hearing too, uh, that that uh, uh, small businesses, which would include farms, are having trouble uh, hiring new employees, finding new employees to, to work on the farm and work for work for the small business. You know, we talk about timing. I, I'm guessing moving forward through the summer now, a lot of the response is going to depend on how conditions look in their area, right? If you're in an area that's drought and the crop's not looking very good, it's going to be hard for them to be optimistic. Other areas may be looking at a pretty good crop and maybe uh, maybe higher prices. They're going to feel a lot more optimistic. Yeah, certainly. The, as we get closer to harvest, the index is very dependent on, on crop conditions. And so, uh, and so when the national yields and the regional yield estimates do come out later this summer, uh, they're going to be very important. Uh, to you know what happens to that index and and there is there is the the crop conditions right now are very mixed as you know 
uh, with the with the upper Great Plains and uh, and, and Minnesota uh, crop conditions not near as good as what they are in the eastern Corn Belt uh, where I'm at, and so and so that is going to play uh, in the ag economy barometer and certainly in the index of current conditions, one of the sub indices. I was we talked a little bit about uh, purchases and land values and things like that. I'm assuming that. Uh, Respondents are also concerned about rising input costs for their operations. That's definitely the case, and, and inflation's been very low for a long time. In fact, if you look at either prices paid for farm inputs or general inflation, it's been below 2%. two percent. Uh, below 2% is an average over the last 10 years, and we asked people about their expectations regarding inflation, and it was a lot higher than 2%. Uh, it, you know, it was probably closer to 5% or above uh, was a very typical response uh, for both inflation and prices paid. And so I think this is also part of what's going on uh, with the with the, with the the ag economy barometer right now. And so we're going to continue to ask those questions related to inflation. And I go back to the cash rent question, uh, you know, the fact that uh, you know, almost half – uh, of the respondents believe that cash rents are going to be higher next year, and uh, only 3% uh, expect cash rents to be lower, that, that's huge uh, when you start looking at break-even prices for corn and soybeans because in the eastern corn belt here, and it's not that much different than the western corn belt, but in the eastern corn belt, a third of the cost for corn is cash rent. Uh, or land charge, and, and for soybeans, it's closer to 40%. So, uh, so certainly if cash rent goes up, that's going to put upward pressure on the break-even prices. But, of course, there's other inputs uh, that look like they might be increasing. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens to seed. Uh, you know, fuel prices uh, are higher. Uh, you know, fertilizer is higher this year. And so, and so I think uh, uh, we've, we went through a period where prices paid for farm inputs was very flat, uh, that's not going to be the case in 21, and that's going to that's going to be pretty important, uh, you know, as we look at the ag economy barometer over the next few months and going in, uh, I, you know, going into uh, 2022. Just a few seconds left. There seems to be increasing interest in leasing farmland for solar energy projects. Is that right? Definitely, and and more more uh, more interest than there was in carbon, or more it's more prevalent. Uh, than, than, than what it is for carbon. We've asked questions related to carbon uh, the last couple months. This month we asked a question related to solar panel. Uh, and a, a third, uh, we're aware of opportunities uh, related to solar panels, and uh, close to 10% have been engaged uh, with, with individuals that are, that are looking at putting solar panels on their farm. And so, and so that's pretty prevalent out there uh, in discussions uh, concerning uh, solar panels. Interesting. Michael, good to talk with you. We'll talk again next month. Okay. Thank you. Michael Langmeyer, Purdue Ag Economist, with the latest numbers, interesting numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Well, a lot of developments uh, lately, not all of them favorable to the biofuels industry. We'll get the thoughts of the CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol, Brian Jennings. He's up next to talk about uh, what has happened and where he sees the industry going next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. 
Plus, with the way this year's been going. <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft. And crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes. Go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Great numbers. What's behind them? Very exciting, actually. The momentum that we had in March and April continues in May. Broad-based growth across the whole spectrum for the most part. Uh, Beef set a record, uh, all-time record for the month, a little over $900 million exported uh, globally. But it was a combination of Korea, China, Japan, Taiwan, and, and Mexico. So you had five or six uh, fairly prominent markets that all showed real uh, sustained uh, growth. So uh, that's exciting. And, of course, on the pork side, it wasn't a record, but it was the third largest month ever. So a very respectable month, um, about 284,000 metric tons. You know, the diversification into these other countries uh, is very important. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, Farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm Radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Each and every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique, original content to their website at DTNPF.com. 
bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crops, cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Always good to talk with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Brian, welcome back. Uh, You've had a couple court rulings, the Supreme Court ruling on RFS waivers, the appellate court ruling on E15 year-round sales that I know were disappointing. Uh, Not all bad, but uh, not the outcomes you'd hoped for. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Uh, Thanks for having me again. And it's been a rough couple weeks, no doubt about it, for the ethanol industry specifically, um, but we've been knocked down before and, you know, we've just got to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off. And, you know, I guess dissecting these two court cases and taking the Supreme Court decision first, um, we don't feel as if this gives sort of blanket authority to EPA to grant more waivers to small refineries. Uh, it does not make it easier for a small refinery to get a waiver from the renewable fuel standard. The most simple way to describe what the Supreme Court decided was um, that it said refineries can seek these waivers really at any time. That was the big question that the court was grappling with. Um, The other reason we feel, I guess, pretty good, if, if that's the way to put it about this Supreme Court small refinery case, is that You know, the Biden administration came out very early, even before Michael Regan was uh, confirmed by the Senate to to head the EPA. The Biden administration came out and said, we agree with that Tenth Circuit decision that would rein in these small refinery exemptions and the real meat of I think Brian dropped off. There he's back. Oh, yeah, you dropped off for a moment. Okay, go ahead, Brian. Sorry, but there are a couple other restraints that the Tenth Circuit imposed. Um, One being EPA cannot use factors outside of the RFS to to grant a small refinery exemption. Uh, And the other being EPA can't use RIN costs as an excuse to, to grant an exemption because refiners recoup those through the prices that they charge for their unblended petroleum. So... We feel reasonably good about that Supreme Court case, despite the fact that we that we lost it. Right. Um, so we kind of wait to see how this EPA moves forward, uh, not only on the waiver issue, but RVO levels. That's going to tell us something, too, isn't it? Well, that's the next big thing. And really, the ball is in the Biden administration's mm-hmm. court. 
They have to decide how to deal with these small refinery exemptions. They have to come out with these renewable volume obligations for both the 2021 and 2022 calendar years. And, Mike, they need to decide how they're going to react to this blow that we took from the D.C. Circuit Court on E15 and the reed vapor pressure issue. Are they going to appeal that case to the D.C. Circuit? We certainly hope so. We're trying to press them to do so. Um, are they going to find another sort of way to, to accommodate us? And so there is a lot riding right now on some announcements and decisions that the Biden administration is expected to make, frankly, between now and mid-August. From an administration that seems to just keep talking about electric vehicles and electric vehicles, does that give you pause for concern? Absolutely, it gives us pause for concern. It's just oversimplified uh, and not realistic to believe that electric vehicles are the only way that we are going to uh, transport people around this nation, around this world in the future. One thing I am uh, grateful for is Secretary Buttigieg of the De Department of Transportation did say something no one else in the administration has been willing to say recently. He said, internal combustion engines are going to be around for decades to come for probably through the rest of the century. And so we have to have a lower carbon fuel to power those engines, to power those vehicles. And that's where ethanol uh, can step into the spotlight. And so we've, we've tried to, be, to make this case with the White House and EPA. We're going to continue to do so. But it was gratifying to see the, the Secretary of Transportation acknowledge the fact that internal combustion engines will be around for a very long time. Yeah, I saw those comments. I, I, I had the same reaction. You know, finally, somebody in the administration is a uh, very high-ranking official stepping up and saying that, acknowledging that publicly. Uh, hopefully, uh, that's a good sign uh, moving forward. Uh, you're going to have uh, uh, your meeting uh, next month, and you'll have plenty to talk about these issues and more. Yeah, goodness. The ACE conference is coming up, as you said, in about a month, the 19th and the 20th of August. There will be We'll probably know what the RVOs look like, so we'll react to those. The biofuel aid from USDA should be known by then. Uh, whether the EPA appeals this D15 court decision, um, where these small refinery exemptions are going, and whether infrastructure legislation has made it through Congress with incentives for flexible fuel vehicles and, and higher blends. So there is just an enormous amount of work on our plate right now during the summer and and we'll be confronting all of those issues discussing all of those issues at our conference uh, real quick when do you expect these rvo levels to be announced i mean already they're behind you get them for 21 we're halfway through 21 i mean uh the history the track record on these things has been all over the place so when do you think we're going to get that announcement i would have guessed friday to be honest with you and i was sort of surprised it didn't happen so i think this week or next week we're going to see these rvos mike and as you said that'll tell us a lot right i mean that's kind of the next biggie for the biden administration to be able they could step up and send a strong signal if if they're supporting the biofuels industry it really will say a lot they have they've been somewhat somewhat silent other than saying they agree with the Tenth Circuit decision on small refinery exemption, since that time, Mike, since about that January-February time frame, we've heard very little from the Biden administration about ethanol, about the renewable fuel standards. So this, they've been holding their cards close to their vest, but they're going to have to show them very soon 
uh, and we'll see if our work is, is paid off in trying to steer them in the right direction. Yeah, pardon the pun, but that volumes announcement will speak volumes, I think, about the administration's position on biofuels. Brian, always good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care. Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. That wraps it up for today. As always, thank you for joining us. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.